So for all practical purposes, we'll be ending on the evening of the 4th, on Saturday. And all day Friday and all day Saturday, those will be not, not days that I'm asking you to talk, talk all day, but silence is lifted. I'll be encouraging people to speak during meals. If you want to be walking together, it might be still nice to keep just the center itself quiet because it's not like the retreat's ended. It is the case that these last two full days, or Friday and Saturday, are real days of transition. Okay, so it could be kind of like a really, a really very meditative day back home, where you're very much engaging with society, but you're putting in four or five hours a day also meditation, something like that, something in between. Um, which means that today being Thursday, we have two full weeks, two full weeks of just silent meditation, which for many of you would be considered a rather long retreat prior to coming here. And so to take full advantage of especially these two weeks, it might be helpful to bear in mind a, a nice sequence that comes up. I've seen it especially in Dzogchen literature of venturing into practices and first of all, gaining what is called koa, koa in Tibetan, or simply understanding. Um, so who's, who's missing right here? Oh, back here. Jolly good. Um, nobody's missing. Um, so koa means understanding. Understanding. So in a one day, I've, I've given a one day workshop. I gave one at UC Davis uh, to the, sci- the scientific staff that was doing all the research. In one day, we did all three shamatha methods. Okay, in one day. So we'd have a little, a little bit of a little hors d'oeuvre of one session of mindfulness of breathing, an hors d'oeuvre of settling the mind, an hors d'oeuvre, and then people kind of taste of the town, and everybody went home with a little taste of the three shamatha methods. Uh, so in a day, in a day or a weekend, you can get understanding, understanding of what, what do people do when they practice mindfulness of breathing? Uh, what's settling the mind? What does that mean? And what's awareness of awareness? Well, you can go out and you can tell your friends, yeah, I, I, I spent one day learning about it, and this is what they do. This is what they do. Right. You would ha- hardly have a clue yourself what it's like actually to do it, but that's something more than nothing. So that's understanding. And then in a week-long retreat, in a five- or six-week-long six retreat, then there's something beyond goa, and it's topa, topa, and that's insight, insight. All of you have had insight now. All of you, I'm not speaking of anything ultimate, but you have insight. You really, some direct knowledge. So insight is good. Of what's it like to practice mindfulness of breathing? What are the issues that come up? How do you deal with them? What's it like experientially? When the practice is going well, what's it feel like? Insight. Mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness. A lot of you, I think, have genuine insight into all three of those practices. You really do know how to practice them, right? As well as for the four immeasurables. So that clearly is something far beyond simply a conceptual or theoretical understanding where you could write a little paper and, and describe what other people do when they do the practice. But there's something beyond insight. Insight actually can come and go. It can come and go. You can have an insight and then after a while it's just a memory. Uh, but it didn't really stick. It didn't get down into the marrow, right? It didn't... There we go. And so there's something beyond topa and then in Tibetan, deng topa, deng topa or sometimes ding topa, and that is gaining confidence, gaining confidence. And so I think you can all get the ambience of that already. It's something beyond just having insight, simply knowing. It's now moving more into that area of familiarization. One person referred to some of the practices, I feel like they're old friends now, you know, like something beyond just insight. 
So as we look ahead to these next two full weeks of silent retreat, especially silent in this, I would really encourage for our center here, the boundaries are pretty clear. This is a silent era. And then when you want to go out and speak with someone, absolutely, always you have that freedom, but probably better not to do it in the center. This is the center of silence. So that would be the best way. That is, we have two weeks now when everybody, I think, has understanding. Many people have insight into one or more or perhaps even all of the practices. But now for these final two weeks of our time together to really then go for something deeper, something that just gets into you, like really knowing how to ride a bicycle. You know, like once you really know, then you're probably just not going to forget. You can you not ride a bicycle for 10 years, get on the bicycle, and away you go, because you knew it well enough that you just really know how to ride a bicycle. So there we are. So there would be my suggestion for how to best use, in terms of an aspiration, aspiration, what might we think? As we think, oh, but the retreat's all, almost over. Well, not really, not two weeks. That's not almost over. And to think in two weeks... Those practices that I'm drawn to, I would like to practice, not only during, but after this retreat. How could I just nail them so really get that confidence? And this two weeks is a very realistic period of time in which to gain that. Obviously not full experience, but getting genuine confidence is really worth something very, very significant. So there we are. And then today we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion and going, as usual, from coarse to subtle, We'll be attending especially to that bandwidth of suffering that all sentient, all sentient beings can recognize, do recognize the suffering of suffering, blatant suffering. And it occurred to me this afternoon that while we can speak of hedonic well-being, hedonic pleasure, which of course is stimulus-driven, as opposed to genuine happiness, which is not dependent upon any stimuli, any appearances arising to the mind. It's really coming from what you're bringing to appearances what you're bringing to reality, and not what's happening to you. So bearing that in mind, that you're all very familiar with, hedonic well-being, genuine happiness, there's also hedonic distress. Hedonic distress. Some of you have had dental problems. Some of you had some infections. Some had a bit of stomach problems, and so forth and so on. And so whether it's you know trouble or you, you, you've gotten some bad news from home, I know for at least one person that happened, and so this is hedonic distress. Some stimulus arose, some appearance, something happened in the world, happened in the world in terms of your own body happening to you or happening in the environment around you, and it winds up being one of those difficult days. And they're suffering, right? So that's, I would call that hedonic distress. It's stimulus-driven distress. But now I think all of you can speak from firsthand. There's another kind of distress. And let's call it genuine distress. And this is where you're just sitting, you've just had a good meal that you're digesting well, and you're sitting in a room, and you've turned the air conditioning just right, and the lighting is just the way you want it, and you're just ready to pull your hair out, <laughs> you know, you just, you feel like crap, you know, you just feel bad, and it's in your body, you say, what's wrong with the body, what's wrong with, uh, no, the body is saying, I'm okay, oh, you mean it's my mind? And this is distress coming from within. It's not stimulus-driven. It's not stimulus-driven. It's coming from inside. Right? And to experience that and to know it can be very meaningful or not. It all depends on how we respond to it. The standard way, the common way, because it's, it's, 
it's sometimes easy to forget. It's not only people who in retreat who can be miserable just sitting in a room by themselves. Actually, it happens out there too. But everybody else has escapes. They have talking. They have television. They have mopeds. They have dogs. They have somebody to talk to. They have work to go to. They've got something just to get away, to cover it over, to escape. And I don't think any civilization in human history has been so good at escape mechanisms as modernity. I mean, just the latest iPod, the latest iPad, the latest video games, the latest television, the latest movie, the latest, 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 all designed, all of this designed to help us get our minds off our minds, frankly. Because otherwise, why would, we need, why would we need any of that junk? It's all anesthesia. Very expensive, very, very ingenious amnesia. Amnesia, anesthesia. And so here we are, that's genuine. And to realize that, to realize, ah, this one, I can't, this, this distress, this uneasiness, this frustration, this restlessness, this sadness, this fear, this anxiety, this bandwidth, this is what I'm bringing to reality. I can't blame anybody for this one. This is what I'm bringing to reality. And if I won a lottery and I had $20 million, I'd bring my misery to that $20 million. If somebody gave me a mansion, a jaguar, or a tiger, or a leopard, you know, whatever, <laughs> I'd bring it to that cat, you know, whatever it would be. <laughs> you thought I was talking about cars again. <laughs> gotcha. And so now it's gotten authentic. Now we've gotten to genuine distress. And it comes, of course, from the imbalances of the mind, from craving, hostility, delusion. That's where it's coming from. And so to recognize that, not run away from it, and recognize, aha, this is what I'm bringing to reality. Do I want to put up with this, or do I want to start changing what I'm bringing to reality? And that's where the seeds of renunciation, the seeds of the spirit of emergence come from. Because as long as we have a clear sense that our distress is coming from outside, we know the answer. Find someplace else to live. Find another partner. Find another house. Find another something, but just get away. We know that, and we do that, and with good reason. If you're living in a place that makes you miserable, move someplace else. You know, if it's stimulus-driven. But when we don't recognize that our distress is coming from inside, and then we go from one spouse to another, and one lover to another, one job to another, and figure out, boy, that she she didn't she disappointed me, and she disappointed me, and that job disappointed me, and that boss sucked, and that was a terrible place to. And we just don't recognize there's one common denominator. And that's the genuine distress that we bring to every situation. So, some people bring more, some people bring less. But there it is. And so, compassion. Compassion for ourselves. Rather than developing low self-esteem out of this, oh, I'm not as good as other people, I'm, I, I shouldn't be this way, and we start beating our, health, our heads, selves over the head with it. We just develop compassion for ourselves. But as we arouse this aspiration for ourselves and others, may we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Then we, of course, we attend to both the hedonic and the genuine distress. Now I'll start calling it that. But for today, since we're focusing on blatant suffering, I, I would suggest that we let the emphasis be on the hedonic because it is so important. It is so important when people are suffering, when we are suffering, any sentient being is suffering blatantly, physical injury, injury, physical illness, mental distress, you know, for, for so they can be catalyzed for so many reasons. It is so overwhelmingly important to the person experiencing it that what, how can we not wish for them to be free 
and wish for ourselves to be free. When we're miserable, we're in physical pain. How can we not wish to be free? I don't think we have much choice there. We just want to be free. So then when we think of freedom, freedom strategies, freedom strategies, and I'm re- referring here specifically to this coarsest level, this hedonic distress or suffering of suffering, mental or physical. Let's take the example of a non-lucid dream. Wide variety of non-lucid dreams. Some of them are just fun, full of giggles and jokes, and other ones are nightmares, and other ones are merely anxious and neurotic. But imagine that you know someone who has recurrent nightmares, really just awful, just terrible nightmares, misery and fear and so forth, and coming again and again and again. Right? So within the context of the dream, this person is experiencing blatant suffering, hedonic. It's, it's stuff happening in the dream that is making this person just terrified, miserable, filled with anguish, and so forth and so on. So if you know, when some, if you know somebody like that, who just dreads, going, dreads falling asleep, after a, if, if the recurrent nightmares are really common, dreads falling asleep, thinking, I, I fall asleep, and then in a matter of hours, I'm going to be in hell again. You know? Well, what might we wish for that person? Of course. Might you be free of the nightmares? You just have a normal dream like the rest of us. Kind of cruddy, but not that bad. You know? Kind of just ho-hum samsara, but not hell realm samsara. And so when you're thinking, oh, might you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, because the causes of suffering, the catalysts are these bloody nightmares and all the terrible things that are happening in the dream, happening to the, to the dream. So perhaps this person could receive, who knows, maybe medication would help, maybe therapy would help. Maybe a nicer pillow would help. Diet change would help. Anything to help to make the nightmares go away and not happen anymore. So that would be, imagine the relief for a person night after night after night just being tormented, not getting good night's sleep, waking up just feeling dreadful because of what happened in the dream and then that not happening anymore. Then just ordinary dreams. Maybe dreams you don't even remember, but they weren't that bad as far as you can remember because you can't remember. Well, that would be a relief to a person who is not having the nightmares anymore. That would say, you know, whatever that therapy was or you gave me a new pillow, I can't thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough. I'm now just dreaming, having ordinary dreams, and it's such a relief. So that would be, to do that would be an act of compassion, right? Is that the only strategy? Just make them go away. Well, no, there are more strategies. And this is, this is escape, liberation from... Hedonic, hedonic, let alone those deeper levels that we get to later on. But imagine that, I mean, all of you, I mean, I can't say all of you, a number of you, I know, have had experience of flying in the dreams. And you don't have to be lucid. You know, you, some people can just get really good at flying, never become lucid, but they just learn, wow, in a dream, I can fly. I can just put on my little S, S you know, my little cape with the S on it, and pew, and off I go, you know? And so... If you could help people learn how to fly in dreams and they're having these nightmares, the nightmares around an ogre or something, a pool of tar and alligators and dragons in it or what have you, and you could say, look, if you come across that tar, that, that terrible lagoon with creepy crawly snakes and alligators and scorpions and so forth, and you suddenly find yourself in it, just fly away. Just fly away. Fly far away whether it's a place, a person, situation, just fly away. Just remember you can fly. 
and just put your arms back and pew, you know, get out of there. And if a person can learn that, that this really is a possibility you have in dreams, because there's no dream gravity, really. That's dream gravity only insofar as you believe there's dream gravity. Stop believing in it, and then you can fly. Well, if a person got the flying dream therapy and found whenever encountered the, dream, the, the, the nightmare, just say, exit, stage, left, I'm out of here, and pew, off it goes. It's a bird, it's a plane, no, it's a dream flyer. You know, and off you go. That would be such a relief. Whenever the nightmare comes, I just fly away. Fly away and leave it behind you. Fly as far away as you need until it's gone. That would be nice. No, okay, whatever comes up, at least I can fly away. Right? That'd be a step in the right direction. Right? That's called retreat. That's called retreat. That's the only strategy. Now I think you can probably start to anticipate. Well, in the dream, even without being lucid, as you're simply maneuvering around in the dream, especially you have an agenda, you have some kind of a prospective memory of if you're dreaming, we'll try this. You may find, even without being lucid, you may find that you can start modifying the nature of the dream just by your expectations, by the way you're imputing, designating regarding, you know, responding to situations, but the dream has a fluidity to it, right? And so you may find that even without having to fly away from the, the nightmare, you may find that even in the midst of it, you can shift it. You can shift it. The nightmares, that is, dreams are so malleable, they're so fluid, lucid or non-lucid, they're both so fluid. You can, you can be in, you can be dreaming along a Detroit and then suddenly, without going, without hopping into a plane or anywhere, from Detroit you're in... Guadalajara, and there you are, you know, Detroit, Guadalajara, and it doesn't seem odd at all, you know. You just, you, you open your bedroom in, in, in Detroit, and you step out, and there's Guadalajara, and everybody's going, ding, 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 <laughs> It's got to be Guadalajara. They're singing Mexican music. What else could it be, right? And so you might be, start become, becoming cunning and say, I can start shaping this baby. I can start modifying it just by my attitude, by my expectations and so forth. So whatever comes up, I don't necessarily have to escape. I can actually start modifying the whole nature of the experience, you know, and change it. So it's no longer dreadful. I can change it. So you start into an expedition. You start getting Xing, getting out of where your ped, your feet are stuck. And you can find, oh, I can actually be something of a magician. I can start to shape change. I can start to shift the nature of the dream just by expecting, anticipating, doing various things, working my little magic. And I can change, change the dream because it's not just absolutely out there. There's this entanglement between myself in the dream and what's happening to me. And I can shift it. And therefore, I can take the fear away. I can take the dreadful qualities away. I can shift it. I can modify it. There's a possibility. So once again, the, the misery of the nightmare can vanish because you learn you can really alter the dream, right? Even if you're not lucid. And now you see the final one coming. You might practice lucid dreaming and wake up within the dream. So in the dream, you are completely clear, as clear as you possibly can be. This is a dream. This is a dream. And knowing it's a dream, then you know perfectly well you can fly away if you like. You know perfectly well this is a dream. I can modify it as I like. But insofar as you're really thoroughly lucid, 
you have really fathomed the nature of the dream. Then you'll know that in the entire dreamscape, there's nothing there that can hurt you. It doesn't matter whether it's a terrible monster, a 30-foot python, a gangster. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter at all. It's kind of like, what shape of a rainbow do you want? You know, what, what flavor of a mirage do you want? I mean, they're just all mirages. They're just all rainbows. There is nothing there that can hurt you. Because there's nothing here from your side that can be hurt. You are a mirage, surrounded by mirages. So whether it's a, a, a mirage with a happy face or a mirage with an ha- unhappy face, it's just a mirage. Because you're awake. And so there's not even any real need to modify it. It's just like looking, oh, I remember when I was a kid, there was one, it was a Godzilla movie, but this is like in the 1950s. 1950s. They scared the crap out of me. And I was like eight years old, but I saw, I mean, Tokyo and those poor Japanese and this really, really realistic monster just gobbling people up and stepping on cars. And obviously it made an impression. I remember it like, you know, 55 years later. So when I was watching that as a little kid, I, I was really, I was like, wow, that's really scary. Those poor people in Tokyo. And then after that, I had to watch Old Yeller and a little kid killing his dog. You know, it was really a tough time for television back then. And so when you're a little kid, you're drawn into it. And then nowadays, with the special effects, if we went and watched a 1950s Godzilla movie, it might bring a lot of chuckles. You know, as an adult, a lot of chuckles like, I think I can almost see the strings on Godzilla. Or, yeah, really, really, that's very sophisticated. You know, but it would, there's just going to be not any fear. I mean, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. You know exactly what it is. It's a little toy, right? And so it's that quality of awareness. You're awake, you're watching, you're watching a 1950s Godzilla movie. And there's just no possibility, whether it goes from Godzilla to Mickey Mouse and then Donald Duck and then Godzilla 2, it doesn't really matter. Nothing on the television is going to scare you, right? From Mickey Mouse to Godzilla, it doesn't doesn't really matter. And so, there we are. Within Dharma practice, when we experience blatant suffering, for example, here, or the people around us, when we've experienced blatant suffering. It's really lovely when it just stops, when the appearances no longer arise. You, you get over the toothache, you get over the physical problems, you get over... The, the, it's nice that the chainsaw is no longer happening. At least it doesn't happen nearly as often, you know, because it was going like eight hours a day, seven days a week. And now that's gone. So it's kind of like, yeah, I prefer it to be gone rather than there. You know, it's kind of nice for us on this side of the building. No chainsaw for a while. That's nice. So some hedonic displeasure, distress, isn't happening for a while. So that's good. So as we aspire for that, then it's gone. Good. Then that suffering is gone because the stimulus is no longer there. Is there another strategy here in our life now, not in the dream, but now I can move quickly because you're going to see where I'm going to go. Suffering is arising in the body. Suffering is arising because of appearances, arising in the mind. We hear bad news, we hear something that makes us anxious, upset, and so forth and so on. And so reality is rising up and it seems like it's against us, it's creating havoc in the mind. And in the dream you can fly away. In the waking state, you can practice samadhi.
practice samadhi. And say, you know, all of this distress, all this crud, all of this behavior in the world, I don't need to stay there. I don't need to be there 24 hours a day. I'm checking out. I'm going to go into my room, close the door, and, and manifest desire realm, get along without me for a while. I'm leaving. Had enough, really, for the time being, I'd had enough. And I'm just going to go in. Go into samadhi, practice shamatha. Follow your breath. Go into awareness of awareness. Just leave it behind. And say, I don't have to deal with this 24 hours a day, and I don't want to deal with it now. Just don't want to deal with it now. On your own, I'm going in. And if you get really good at it, achieve shamatha. And it's an escape. It's a retreat. And it's incredibly a relief. So while you're there, the problems of the world are not touching you. While you're resting in shamatha, there's no physical pain. You don't feel your body. There's no mental pain because your coarse mind is dissolved. There's no, men- there's no mental pain in the substrate consciousness. Luminous, blissful, non-conceptual. No problem there. Go into the form realm. There's no, there's no pain there, physical or mental. Nothing in the form realm or the formless realm. So you've escaped. Escape, like flying away in the dream. Right? It's a retreat. Sometimes retreats are really, really good idea. Right? But if we consider also, if we just go back to the analogy of flying away in the dream, where are you flying from and where are you flying to? How far do you need to fly? Within the dream, how far do you need to fly? Because there's no real space in the dream except the space of your own mind. So you're really not going from here to there. Because there isn't any here and there isn't any there. Because it's all mental space. So there are no yards, there are no meters. Not, there's no physical space in mental space. And so all you're doing is shifting appearances. You're not really going from here to there. Not in a dream. You may have... And see all the, you know, the, the forests and the trees and the rivers all... S- flashing behind you. All you're seeing is, is an array of appearances, but you're not going anywhere. You're not going from your left ventricle to the right ventricle, to the frontal cortex, back to the, you know, back to the brainstem. I mean, you're not going anywhere. It's just appearances. It's like sitting in a movie theater and feeling, you know, and then the, the camera mounted on a car and you're zooming through the traffic and, oh, oh, this is too fast. You're not going anywhere. It's just appearances on the screen. You're not moving at all. So... Just practice shamatha. You don't need to go anywhere. You simply withdraw from the appearances. And that's a retreat. Strategy number three is settling the mind in its natural state while in meditation. And in between sessions, bring out your heavy, heavy armaments, your heavy artillery. Lojong practice, learning how to transform the experiences, whatever arises, into the path by shifting your attitude, by shifting your perspective, viewing it differently. Instead of seeing adversity as 100% negative, seeing adversity, illness, loss of a loved one, what have you, and transforming it, transmuting it, so you no longer see it as 100% disagreeable, but in fact completely incorporated into your path. The appearances are the same with the way you're experiencing it is radically different. You've brought the wisdom of insight, you've brought the wisdom of the teachings on emptiness, of lo jong, of how to transform all circumstances into the path. You're like the person in the dream that's learned how to shape 
modify the dream just by shifting the perspective and so forth. So now you're on an expedition. You're not retreating, you're venturing in, but you're transforming that into which you're venturing and experiencing in a different way. And you can very deliberately choose to experience in a way such that hedonic distress doesn't arise. Right? So I think of one of my revered teachers, Yang Tanamuchi, I've mentioned it before. He's in retreat right now for some months, we don't know how long, up in Sikkim. But he was the one that spent, I think it was 18 years, in concentration camp. Starvation, torture, that kind of thing. 18 years. And he said, while in prison, he said, my mind was happier than most people's mind who are outside of prison. So he transmuted, big time. Right? So he didn't retreat. He was on an expedition in a concentration camp and transformed it because of the power of his mind. Not just samadhi, but inside. Inside. So there's that possibility. Bring in the bring in the vipassana, bring in the insight, bring in the the lojong, the mind training imbued with the insight of vipassana realization, and you venture into the experience and transmute it. And the hedonic suffering, hedonic distress doesn't arise, doesn't need to, because objective reality is not sufficient to impose that on the mind. We have to rise up to it. So it's like two waves coming together, and here's the wave of adversity coming up. The wave of adversity. And the whole world will say, oh, too bad. I'm so sorry this has happened to you. That's so awful. It's a wave of adversity. And then coming to that wave arises, like two waves crashing, and comes another wave. And it's that intersection of the two waves that is where your experience is. It's right there where the two waves collide. And when that wave of adversity rises to meet you, and you rise to meet it, if you lock onto it, identify it as 100% negative, it is. It's 100% negative. It's just suffering. Not because it was 100% suffering from its side, but that's how it's apprehended. We get a lock, that's how we impute it, we designate it, and then we have just 100 distress. Poor me, this is awful, what a calamity. This is terrible, I can't stand it. Right? Because we've designated it as such. Designate it in a different way, shift, shift the way of viewing it, shift the way of viewing it. And now the whole nature of the experience is going to be different depending on how skillful you are in shifting attitude, perspective, and so forth. And so what actually occurs in your experience is always the confluence of two waves. The appearances arising to meet you and how you cognize them. The expedition is to transmute that intersection point. But of course, the deepest expedition, the ultimate expedition, is into Rikpa. To wake up. And whatever comes along, whether, whether, whether the world calls it adversity, the world calls it felicity, whatever the world calls it, that's what people in the non-lucid dream call it. But from an awakened perspective, like the person is thoroughly lucid and seeing there's no need to change anything as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, there's no need to change anything. As far as others are concerned, there's everything, every reason. When people are hungry, you don't say, oh, but I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. Tough luck on you. I wish you were a Dzogchen practitioner too. No. You give them food. Right? If they need shelter, if they're, if they're, and so forth and so on. For others' perspective, absolutely there's everything to be done. From your perspective, for your own well-being, nothing needs to be done. Any more than when you're completely lucid in a dream. You need to modify the dream in order to be happy. Your happiness is coming out of the euphoria of recognizing the dream as a dream. And you don't need any more happiness than that. 
So you don't, there's just no incentive to modify the dream as far as you're concerned. But if you see people in the dream around you who are suffering, then of course you want to help them because they're not lucid. And they're taking all of this as being absolutely real. And the hedonic distress is as real as it gets as far as they're concerned. So, so many layers, layers and layers. So I've done my best, I think, to try to bring as much wisdom from the wisdom teachings, not my wisdom, but the wisdom teachings of the Buddhist tradition to these four immeasurables, that you'll not have the sense that the cognitive part, the shamatha vipassana part, is way over here, and the four immeasurables are way over there. This is for the heart, and this is for the mind. But recognize they're both citta, Chitta, heart-mind, heart-mind, right? And that when you're practicing shamatha, you're doing so in a spirit of loving-kindness, compassion for yourself and others. And when you're practicing loving-kindness and compassion, it's just saturated by insight. So, as we turn to the meditation then, the theme on latent suffering, hedonic distress. Bring it to mind, the kinds of distress that you've experienced yourself in the past, to which you are vulnerable in the present and the future. And arouse this heartfelt desire. It should be so easy and so natural. May I be free. May I be free. May I not simply have history repeating itself or even rhyming, but find a way to freedom from hedonic distress, the blatant suffering of suffering. And where it's possible for the suffering just to go away, like the nightmares no longer occurring. Good. Excellent. Where sometimes it's not going to go away. At least for the while. It's the way things are. Then envisioning, but there is another way to develop the strength of the mind, the focus, the balance, the clarity and the calm. To be able to, when needed, when it's appropriate, just withdraw into a place of serenity, of clarity, of calm, and even bliss, and to cultivate that ability. Precious jewel. Beyond that, imagine cultivating such insight. There's no need to withdraw, but you transform the whole experience with your wisdom, the insight applied. No reason to escape. Modify it. And then finally, even in the midst of the most adverse circumstances, a concentration camp is about pretty much towards the limit, I think, in human experience. That's, I don't think it gets much more intense than that. Deliberate cruelty and torture for years on end. That's pretty much, that pretty much maxes itself out for me. I can't imagine much worse than that. When you also know it's being done to you by somebody deliberately. Pretty intense. And even there you can be free by waking up and resting in your own nature. So, aspire for freedom. Imagine freedom for yourself and others. When it's for yourself, it is a spirit of emergence that will lead you to liberation. When it's for others, we call it compassion. Okay? Find a comfortable position.
release all appearances. Let your awareness remain in its own place without withdrawing into retreat, without venturing forth into an expedition into the realm of appearances. Let it rest right where it is, knowing itself in stillness. Let's bring the session to a close.
Olaso, so that you can gain confidence in the practices, especially those that we've done for the last few days. Any questions or comments or insights, observations? Anything on your mind? Yes, Andreas. Yes, uh, I have a question basically concerning all three, three uh, practices of shamatha. Okay. <laughs> that is, uh, when, when we uh, eventually reach shamatha, actually, mm. um, some of us probably will. Why not? Um, can you give some instructions or recommendations what to do then after that? <laughs> that is, <laughs> I mean, um, for the for the hours, days, and weeks after that, probably, uh-huh. what is what what could be useful? Yeah. And then then I have a second question. Oh no! Oh, only one at a time. Yeah. That's that, that's good one. I spoke with someone some time ago who said, um, who was actually quite intent on achieving shamatha. And I heard that with great respect and appreciation. I said, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life in retreat. And I understand that too. But whatever this person says, I do or do not want today, is going to be absolutely irrelevant when this person achieves shamatha. Do you think the person is going to think now, what did I want on, March, on May 19th, 2011? Because I better do that, because that's, after all, that's what I wanted on that day. That's not going to happen. So once you've achieved shamatha, the world will be perceived differently. Your whole experience of your body and mind is going to be different. And you're going to make your decisions then. And those are the only ones that count. And whatever you think now is just fine. But it just doesn't matter. <laughs> because the person... Let's say the person is, there's no person here called Jack. Jack, decide, Jack thinks, now I don't want to spend the rest of my, day, my life in retreat. And Jack, who's achieved shamatha in 13 months and five days, really doesn't, just, just doesn't give Jack about what Jack of May 19th, 2011 wanted. Does not care. Complete, number one, has forgotten it. And number two, if it remembers it, doesn't care. Because he said, that poor schmuck back there hadn't achieved shamatha. Who cares what he wants? I've achieved shamatha. I'm calling the shots now, and I'll decide where I'm going from here. But I don't even care what he wants. He might want to become an ice cream man, run, an, you know, drive an ice cream, you know, make people happy. That's another of my memories from my childhood. That's the song. You remember, 1950s. You remember, yeah. Some people are as old as I am, and man, it's cinnamon popsicles. And that ice cream of cinnamon popsicles to kill for, to die for. Not to kill for, but... (laughs) To die for, I think is the answer. But that ice cream man can make people happy. Made me happy, multiple times. Just the sound. Brings a smile like happiness is coming up in a truck. So that's one way to make people happy. So maybe right now you think, after I achieve shamatha, I want to drive an ice cream truck. (laughs) (laughs) But after you achieve shamatha, it just won't matter. Because you might have another idea that's even better than selling kids ice cream. And so 
I'll give only a very broad response to your, to your very good question. There's nothing, nothing laughable about your question. It's a perfectly good question. I say from that perspective, we have this English phrase, strike while the iron's hot. Strike while the iron's hot. Make hay while the sun shines. We have all kinds of cliches about that. Once you've achieved shamatha, the iron is very hot. To do something irreversible. Now, Dujum Lingba, when he, discuss, uh, when, he dis, when he explains with just... In an, I've never seen anything like it. His explanation of shamatha and what really, what's it like. Not what it should be, but actually what it is like. And the kind of nyam that will arise. I've never seen that in any other text. And that's just because I'm ignorant. There are probably a lot of texts that discuss it, but I've never seen it. But then he comes to achieving shamatha where your mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness. He describes it with radiant clarity. So some, sometimes I think my words are clear. Sometimes my teachings are clear. There's no mystery about it. The sources I'm drawing from are just incredibly clear. And so, but he says of this, that once your mind is dissolved into the substrate consciousness, you're experiencing that bliss like the warmth of a fire, clarity like the breaking of the dawn, non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. He said, if that's all you do, you have not moved one inch towards enlightenment. You've just achieved shamatha. You've not even moved an inch towards enlightenment. If that's all you're going to, if, if now you're satisfied and you just stay there, it's going to, you've just filled a tire full of air and you've gotten just the right pressure. Right? Well, there's something called entropy. And there's no way that that tire pressure is going to stay the same. It's against all the laws of nature. It will become flat. Now, you might pump it up, but if you don't pump it up, it will become flat. Tires wear out. You achieve shamatha, but if that's all you do, it will become flat. You will lose it. Maybe not this lifetime. You'll lose it in the bardo. If not in the bardo, you'll lose it when you're pooping your pants the next lifetime in the, as, as a kid. But you'll lose it sooner or later because it's just not self-sustaining. There's nothing irreversible. So, strike while the iron is hot. You've achieved a platform now. I really kind of think of it as like a base camp that is, that is you have the valley of, of Mount Everest, the, 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 the valley down below, but I don't think anybody in one day climbs from the, va- from the valley up to the peak of efforts and then climbs back down again. I've, I've done that. No, not, but I didn't even do it from baseline. I climbed Mount Whitney, which goes up to about 15,000 feet. But even then, I, I, I drove up to the railhead, up to the railhead, the, uh, the parking lot, and then hiked. But that was about 8,000 feet. But in one day, hiked up the face, climbed and hiked up the face to 15,000 feet, and climbed down again. That was quite, a, quite an ordeal. That was, that was very satisfying. But nobody does that to Mount, Mount Everest. It's too big. And so you have to establish that, that base camp. I think it's about 17,000, 18,000 feet. Maybe it's higher than that. But that's your home. But once you've established a home there, now you can think about going up and down. I, again, I don't know exactly where that base camp is, but people do go up and down to where the tent is. And so the achievement of shamatha <coughs> is a base camp for two routes up the mountain to enlightenment. And I'll, sp- I'll, I'll speak in the context of Mahayana, but you can easily translate it over to the Shravayana path to achieve our hardship. Both are magnificently meaningful. So having achieved shamatha, one may, might say, all right, now I'm within reach. I, I'm, I, I, can, I can actually make the ascent. From here, I can make the ascent to becoming a bodhisattva and achieving the path and becoming an irreversible bodhisattva. And that will change everything for all of the future. To become an irreversible bodhisattva. That means for all of the future. I mean, that's all of the future. That's eternity. That will change everything. Because that means from now on, 
I'll be only a bodhisattva or eventually a Buddha, but I'll not be anything other than bodhisattva, bodhisattva, Buddha, but not bodhisattva, unbodhisattva, unbodhisattva. It won't happen. It's irreversible. You're within now ascent to achieve that irreversibility. On the Shravaka, why not? I'll mention that explicitly. If you achieve shamatha, then why not go for Vipassana? Go directly to Vipassana and become a stream enterer. Once you're a stream enterer, it's irreversible. It's irreversible. You've achieved something irreversible. And then there's a route that I'll refer to, and then you can ask your second question. And that is from from becoming an irreversible bodhisattva, then of course continue on. Vipassana, stage regeneration, stage of completion, if you want to practice Vajrayana. If you don't want to practice Vajrayana, no problem. Practice the six paramitas and do so forever until you've achieved enlightenment. It's all good. You know, six, every, every lifetime, six perfections. Just getting better and better and better. Because you're actually on a path. You're not a dog chasing its tail anymore. You're actually on a path. And then, of course, this very sharp path, an elaborated path, to use the Tibetan, Drupa, Drupa Drupa an elaborated path, the path of Dzogchen, if you achieve shamatha, why would you hesitate? If, 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 the, if what you're drawn to, your, your heart is drawn to following the path of Dzogchen, then it's really, really clear in so many texts. It's, it's natural liberation, Padmasambhava, Kama Chakment is the same, Ledap Lingba, very along the same lines, Dujum Lingba, exactly the same. Achieve Shamata, go for Vipassana, gain, gain realization of emptiness. Gain realization of emptiness. Fuse the two, Shamata Vipassana, into emptiness. And then with that realization, then go directly to the texture to realize your Buddha nature, and from there go to Turtgal and become a Buddha. So it's only four steps, massive steps, but nevertheless, it's extremely straight. And so those are what I would suggest. My, my question was more from a technical um, point, point of yeah, view. You're welcome to ask it again, but I think that's probably going to be my answer because the time to ask that question is when you've achieved shamatha. And if I'm alive, then you're welcome to ask then. Or there are so many other good teachers, so many who are far more, more deeply realized than I am. And if you've achieved shamatha... Uh, I think you'll find extremely realized teachers will be delighted to give you the no, guidance that, you seek. Something, wh- Still not. What I'd like to know is, after achieving shamatha, yeah. um, do I have to... Um, is, it, is it then very easy to slip into the substrate yes. again? Or, yes. or do I have to practice it again and again? Very good. Okay, that's a very it? practical question, and that one I can answer. Yes. Based upon centuries of experience... And, and very recently, from His Holiness Dalai Lama, he addressed this point. But specifically, if you've achieved shamatha, how easy is it to lose? Not easy at all. That is, and, and I just mentioned this to somebody else. Again, considering you know post shamatha days, um, do you have to stay in retreat? You have to stay in retreat for the rest of your lifetime just to keep your shamatha together, or could you come out? Could you come out and teach uh, or serve in a myriad of ways? And then the answer is yes. Yes, and, and there's something different. If Now, if you've achieved, let's say, stage seven, that's pretty formidable. Achieve stage seven, and then you go out into the world, and it's helter-skelter and multitasking and all over the place. You'll lose it. Very likely, you'll lose it. Now, the imprints are there. If you go back to the meditation, it probably won't be that difficult to retrieve it, but you will lose it, very likely, because something really core, not irreversible, but quite core, hasn't happened yet. And that is this Xinjiang, Ludang Simki, Xinjiang, that when you actually achieve shamatha, this radical shift, this really fine-tuning of the prana within the body and the corresponding, the correlates of the mind, this suppleness, it's prashrapta in Sanskrit, the suppleness of the body and the mind, that the energy flow in the body is unprecedented 
and you'd have to do something really foolish, like take some heavy-duty psychedelic, I mean, something stupid, like a psychedelic or drink heavily or do something really stupid, you know, to lose it. Or one might have a terrible accident where one's whole, one's spine is broken and massive brain damage and so forth. I'm sure you could lose it that way just because there's so much damage to the body. But apart from that, if one avoids major injury, avoids doing something incredibly stupid like taking psychedelics or other heavy-duty drugs like that, then there's a very good chance leading a sensible lifestyle, just this, a sensible lifestyle, sensible lifestyle of just seeing for yourself Am I even getting near losing it? In which case, oh, okay, well, maybe 16-hour days, 16-hour a day, 16-hour days of working in the New York Stock Exchange, maybe not the best place to go after achieving shamatha, right? So there are lifestyles that would not be conducive. But then you can say, look, this is such a high priority. Keep this and use this as a base camp for doing everything else. But you do need to be in retreat? No, you don't. So there are no, no um, recommendations like I, I have to practice it and, 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 and enter it a couple of times in order to stabilize it. It's, that's, that's not the case. It's just, you know, it's, it, I think this actually is enough, enough advice. Just be sensible. Just be sensible once you've achieved it. I can say, do you need to stay in retreat? No, you don't. Should you go off and work 16-hour days as a stockbroker? Bad idea. And so then something in between... Uh, but just overall, I speak of seasoning the day, seasoning the day, you know, bringing these moments of shamatha throughout the day. Well, your day is going to be like s s seasoning saturated just because the whole quality of awareness you're going to bring to in-between sessions is going to be so much higher. Uh, the vividness, the inner stability, the sense of well-being, the, the difficulty there is in mental afflictions arising and dominating the mind. It's like you just have uh, exceptional, how do you say, psychological hygiene, your, your psychological immune system is so robust that it can be very difficult for it to be overwhelmed and then just go down. And that can happen, and you might recall the, 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 the account from Devadatta, Devadatta, the Buddha's cousin. And he was very gifted when it came to shamatha. He achieved shamatha, not only shamatha. He achieved all four jhanas. He achieved four jhanas. So really, quite spectacular. There were many people back then who did, but he was one of them. Very gifted. He did not achieve vipassana. He did not achieve stream entry. But he became very, very adept in samadhi. And moreover, not just samadhi, just going into equanimity, bliss, and all of that, but also out directly out of his samadhi. And just for that reason, he also developed siddhis, paranormal abilities. Right? He did. It, and there are accounts. Now, of course, one doesn't have to believe this, but this is what the texts say, and I, I have no reason to doubt them. It, this very much part of my worldview. So he was actually rather fond of displaying his cities, trying to impress people, especially a king, a particular king. Um, so he would display them. And then, then the little, the little worm, little worm of envy started growing that even though he could impress people with his, with his samadhi, with his paranormal abilities, he wasn't impressing people nearly as much as his cousin, the Buddha. And he just couldn't stand it. He really couldn't stand it. And his, and his cousin was getting kind of old. I don't know exactly how old, maybe 65, something like that. Just a guess. And so, but he was very competitive, very competitive. And so he actually drew up his own rules. He thought he had a better idea than, than the, the Vinaya, the monastic rules that the Buddha had come up with based upon individual's experience. Came up with his, old, his own set of rules that he thought would just be better than the ones that the Buddha had come up with. And he came to the Buddha and said, Cuz, that's short for cousin. He said, Cuz, you're getting old, getting kind of long in the tooth. I think you should retire, but I'm happy to take your place 
and I'll, I'll take over. And by the way, I've got some brand new ideas. These should be the laws. These should be the, the regulations, the rules for the, sang- for the Sangha ordained Sangha. Uh, so what do you say, cuz? Buddha's response was not favorable. He did not agree. And Devadatta got very pissed and all the more envious. And as his malice grew, his paranormal abilities vanished and he lost his, he lost his jhanas. He went flat. And so when he wanted to kill the Buddha, rather than using psychic powers, which that would kind of be an obvious option if you had them, he had to roll rocks down a hill like a caveman. I mean, give me a break, you know. And they just throw rocks at him. You know, so he had to go to the most primitive. Or he found the Buddha walking along a, a, along a path, and he, you know, got somebody to set loose a you know a raging elephant to try to stampede him to death. I mean, really primitive methods. But that's all he could do because he had lost all of his inner powers. So he lost it completely, because you'll recall that the five jhana factors are completely incompatible with five obscurations, and one of the obscurations is ill will or malice. So his mind became dominated by malice. He lost his shamatha. So it's not only been doing stupid things like getting drunk or taking drugs, but it's also if one allows one's mind to fall back into any of the five obscurations, especially malice, that's a real killer, then we'll lose it. Okay? Number two. The second question is, how far is it from shamatha to the first jhana and um, what will what will somebody experience when entering this, the first jhana? <laughs> You'll be very happy. <laughs> How long it is, it varies from one individual to another. Some people zip through it very quickly, other people much more slowly. Uh, if you're following the path, number one, this is something that is, I've never read an experiential account or anything that kind of had the taste of an experiential account from Tibetan writings, from Tibetan Buddhist writings. There's a massive amount of literature. Most of it I haven't read, but nevertheless, I've read a sprinkling. I've never read any accounts that, that sounded like a yogi's first-hand experience of going from access to the first jhana to the first jhana from the Tibetan tradition. And that is not because they weren't serious meditators. I mean, there were, you know, for 1,200 years, I think every generation, incredible meditators. But this wasn't where the emphasis was. They simply, I think there was a, an, an insight, a determination a long time ago that in terms of the samadhi track, shamatha is sufficient and now get on with Vipassana, bodhicitta, stage regeneration, completion, Dzogchen, Mahamudra. Because you'll get all the benefits of the higher jhanas in terms of paranormal abilities, extrasensory perception, and so forth. You'll get all of those by these other practices. They come as dividends. right? So, uh, so it's not, that's not a strength of the Tibet, Tibetan Buddhist tradition. They have a great academic tradition on this. And there's all kinds of treatises. I've read some of them of you know, how to go from the first jhana to the second jhana, third, fourth, up into the formless realms and so forth. But they really strike me as very academic. I'm sure based on superb scholarship, but they strike me as being very academic. So if somebody else sees some experiential account, then I'd, it's called, uh, what's it called? Nyam, it's a, nyamgur, like songs of experience, like Milarepa, just spontaneously coming out with songs of, of his realization. Well, there are quite a few like that. But I haven't seen any about achieving jhana. So I think the place to go for that would be back to the Theravada tradition because they're not, how do we say, distracted by stage of generation, completions, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and so forth. It's shamat, it's, it's shila, samadhi, pranya. That's it. I mean, it's a straight track. And there, there have been. And I suspect now, too, but I, I really can't speak with authority, um, people nowadays in the Theravada tradition who have authentically achieved 
the first stage of, uh, you know, the actual first jhana. Um, what it is in short, and I have to stop there, time is running out and I'm verbose, and that is you get that counterpart sign, which is so subtle, but you keep on coming back to it. So let's imagine your trajectory with mindfulness of breathing, and you follow the acquired sign, and finally, kind of the breakthrough to the form realm, the rupadhatu, the counterpart sign arises, you almost certainly lose it very quickly, then you return. You return, you return, you return. Rather like, analogous, but not the same, like the person in rather early phases of mindfulness of breathing who's attending to the tip of the nostrils and just can't detect the breath anymore. It just got too subtle. So there you are, just kind of hanging with the sensations there, but not the breath anymore. And then you go off and ask your teacher, the teacher says, look more closely. And you just keep on looking more and more and more and more closely until you get it. You say, ah, there it is. It was just too subtle. I hadn't noticed it. But there's still that undulation. There's that variation. That variation in the sensations that, that indicates in-breath and out-breath. And it was just too subtle for me to see before. But now that I've got the... Now that I've contacted it, now, okay, I'll remain in touch. And then you follow that. In a similar fashion, you come back to the balanga and you retrieve. You retrieve that counterpart sign, which is so subtle, but you retrieve it. And then you just lock onto it and you develop your shamatha all over again on that. And that's how you achieve the access, the, the full, full jhana. You achieve shamatha all over again on the counterpart sign. And that's how it's done. Okay, in short, some people it might be a matter of days. Some t- people it could be a matter of weeks, I can imagine. I would not imagine it would be months and months. Uh, unless some just unusual circumstances arose. Okay? Number thank three. You. Yeah, you're welcome. Is that it? That's it, thank you. Oh, I thought there were three. I was, all, I had my, I was all ready for number three. <laughs> and I'm disappointed. Does anybody have a number three? Okay. Sandra, what's number three? From the sublime to the mundane. Mm. Can you talk to us about lengthening our practice? Um, I'm not sure how to, how to increase, and I don't want to get um, performance-driven, which is really easy for me to do. Yes, yeah, easy for a lot of people to do, and, and ni- nice phrasing, performance-driven. I can see you were in the advertising business before. That's, that's catchy. It's got a real zing to it, performance-driven. It's good. Yeah, I, do not read any sarcasm. Just good. That's a very good phrasing. Um, Good question, and I think I can answer it actually succinctly. How to determine the ex- when, how often, and the extent to which we should lengthen the practice, whether the individual sessions from 24 minutes to half an hour, half an hour to 40 minutes, and so on, but also the number of sessions. When you have some spare time, should you maybe add another session towards the end of the day or what have you? And my short answer would be um, lengthen it, increase the quantity, because that's what we're talking about, the quantity of time in formal sessions, increase it with a smile. And that is increase it because you want to. Because there's nothing you'd rather do as an expression of loving kindness for yourself. What would really make you happy? Another session would go down real well. Another five minutes, I would savor. I would like to do that. That's the way to extend it. But make sure there's a balance. It's so in performance, performance, what was it called? Your phrasing? Performance driven. Performance driven, yeah. When we're performance driven, it's so often, it's so easy to bring in the should, the should verb. I, sh- I think I should, I think I, it's about time I should be. After all, I've been here for five and a half weeks. I should be. And then we end the sentence.
If he give me more, I'd really like to. I'd really like to. That's the way to extend the sessions. Okay? Play it by ear. And if, some, if sometime you're in a session and it's only the third session and it's only a 30-minute, 30, 30 35-minute session and you're feeling, I just don't want to do this. My stomach feels bad. My back feels bad. My mind just feels heavy and not inclined. And I don't really want to do it, but, oh, geez, I got another 24 minutes or 13 minutes. <laughs> Damn clock. <laughs> that's the time to say hey who's in charge here the clock or you and if you just don't feel like doing it I would suggest don't do it go for a walk go for a walk but on that performance driven issue of to be really embracing embracing these foundational practices the infirmary even if you're not lying down the infirmary just sitting down and going I'd rather do that than, than almost anything. You know, it's so soothing. Just act of loving kindness, down to the ground, down into the body, and then breathing and saying, "Well, that's nice. That's nice to breathe." And it's not hard. And the instructions are to relax every outbreak. And that that actually gets to be one of your sessions. That counts, you know. Total emphasis on relaxation. <coughs> relaxation without losing vividness. Or relaxation fo fo focusing on the tummy. That's peaceful. That's nice. I'd rather be peaceful than agitated. And that's peaceful. I think I want to meditate some more. I don't really want to stop, frankly. Even if it's not blissful, even if I can't say it's stage five, it's stage this, stage that, this feels better than the alternative. And this is the, the real strength, the, the value of being in an environment that has so few enticing distractions. Because if you have some really cool distractions and you're weighing which would I prefer, to go like this? Or watch the late, latest movie that came out you know, with special effects and 3D and better 3D because it's better technology. You know, Then that might draw you out. So the more suctions we have out there, then the competition will be uneasy, uh, uneven. Right? Whereas here, which, part, which road would you like to walk on and be hot and sweaty? Would I go to the east or the west? They're equally hot and sweaty. I think I can guarantee that. You know? And so, or I could stay in my air-conditioned room. I think I made my decision. <laughs> and I will walk because it's really good for the body. And I'll stay in my room because I love it. Enjoy your dinner. I'll see you a bit later. <laughs>